Please remain standing with me and turn, if you will, in a copy of the scriptures, first to Colossians chapter 3. If you're able to put a finger in Jeremiah 37, we'll be uh, turning there, uh, 37 and 38, as our main text this morning. But first, a few verses from Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, you'll find that on page 984. Dear children of the risen Savior, uh, let us give our attention to our Savior's word. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 37. We'll be looking at at, uh, chapters 37 and 38, which are really meant to be read together. Uh, I'll be reading selected portions Uh, Let's start with verses 6 through 15 of chapter 37. If you're uh, using a church Bible, you'll find uh, chapter 37 beginning on page 665. Jeremiah 37, 6 through 15. Again, this is God's word. It says so right here. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. Now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion There among the people, when he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Erijah, the son of Shalamiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said, It is a lie. I am not deserting the Chaldeans. But Erijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. So ends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us ask that he would be pleased to minister to us through it this morning. Most gracious Lord, our hearts are indeed prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. and We are not by nature people of your word. And so we ask that you, Father, would be with us this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, you would illumine our minds, that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth. Amen. You may be seated.
I'm only human. We've all heard the expression. We've probably all said it. And we all know what's meant and by it. We know what's coming next. Uh, it's preparing the way for some excuse for something that has gone terribly wrong. On the surface, it means something like, look, I, I'm finite. But really it means, don't expect too much from me. It's our clumsy version of uh, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Uh, and to be sure, humans do fail. Uh, we fail often. We humans are complicated. Our highs are high. Our lows are low. We have within the human history examples of great compassion and great evil. And so we're drawn to stories about humanity, of real life. It's because these stories have a way of putting the deepest philosophical questions and ideas that we wrestle with into language that we can understand. Humanity and and real life stories put flesh and bones on concepts that struggle to find their way from the ivory towers down into real life. Perhaps that's why the book of Jeremiah couches its message in the lives of real live people. Uh, Its message isn't simply found in the teaching, the words spoken by the prophet, but in his life and in the lives of those he comes in contact with. And that's where his message really finds its greatest voice. Because we can identify with those people and the way that message takes form in their lives. What is the message of Jeremiah? That's a great question. The message of Jeremiah, if I could be a little bit simplistic, is largely about what it means to be human. When we ask that question, what does it mean to be human? What we're really asking is, what is unique about humans in God's creation? How are we different from all other creatures? We, we know the simple answer. We're made in God's image, something of, of which no other creature can boast. But from there, it gets a bit more complicated. What does it mean to be made in God's image? What happened to that image when Adam and Eve sinned? And what's the future of that image? Those are the important questions that we have to ask when we talk about what it means to be human. Instinctively, we know that we're different. We know that we're unique. Even atheists understand that. Of course, they attribute our uniqueness to time, chance, and evolution. But the reality itself is unavoidable. Humans are different. When people are at their worst, the Bible says they're beastly. They act like animals. And that's not meant to be a compliment. Uh, Animals live on instinct, self-preservation. Animals flee from danger. They don't run into burning buildings, especially for complete strangers. Animals don't wrestle with life's big questions. But people, humans, we're all together different. There are questions we have to ask, questions that no one puts in our minds. They're, they're there that we're born with, we have to wrestle with, we have to answer. What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? Why are we here? And where are we going? 
We all know these questions. We all know that there's such a thing as good, and we all know that there's an ideal that we often fail to meet. And so typically when we say, I'm only human, really what we're trying to do is soothe our conscience because we know, we, we know that it's precisely because we're human that we ought to be striving for an ideal, an ideal we don't expect from animals. If we were to express what's really going on, what our hearts simultaneously want to cry out but are afraid to admit, it might sound something more like this. I am human, but not fully so. There's something missing. I want to be whole. And yet that sounds so unattainable, impossible, so far away. And so the book of Jeremiah is about what it means to be fully human, to see that image of God restored within us. It's about being whole, wholly human. And it's told in the context and through the life of Jeremiah and those he comes in contact with along the way. And today, as we look at chapters 37 and 38, Jeremiah sort of recedes into the role of a supporting character, and three others come to front stage. Uh, a guy named uh, Arijah, an Ethiopian named Ebed Melech, and then the king of Judah, Zedekiah. And through these three, God wants us to ask what it means to be human. And my hope as we look at these three would be to argue for something like this. To be truly human is to be most like God, knowing what is true, loving what is good, and subduing the temptation to serve only yourself. Knowing what is true, loving what is good, and subduing the temptation to serve only yourself. That's what we want to look at through these three lives, uh, these three uh, individuals today. Arijah, that's an interesting name, uh, was a guard stationed at one of the gates leading uh, in and out of Jerusalem on the way to the land of Benjamin. Uh, His name means something like Yahweh sees or the Lord sees or or we might just say God sees. It's an interesting name because many people in the land were wondering if indeed God really did see what was going on. The land was in absolute upheaval. For years, Jeremiah had been warning that the king of Babylon would would come and finish what he had started and completely destroy the land and take everybody into slavery or put them to the sword. Now it's happening. Uh, The rightful king has been taken away into exile. He's been replaced with his uncle Zedekiah, a weak-willed man who is easy to control, uh, what we might call a puppet king. The army of Babylon is outside the city gates laying siege to Jerusalem. Day after day, they are bombarding the walls. They are cutting off the supply lines. And then, Pharaoh and the army of Egypt come up to to help Israel. And now there are two foreign armies outside the gates. Will the Egyptians rescue us? Will they join forces with the Babylonians and increase our danger 
Will one destroy the other, and then whoever remains turn on us and conquer us? Or maybe will they just destroy each other or weaken each other enough that they both go away and we go back to life as normal? And they're wondering, does God see? Does God see what's going on? Does he see our plight? Does he see our struggle? Does he understand our pain? Does he know our anxiety? Does he care? Zedekiah, who to this point has rejected everything Jeremiah has said, suddenly says, hey, maybe we should check with the prophet. And he sends a secret message to Jeremiah asking for prayer, asking for intercession, asking for guidance. And Jeremiah responds by saying, nothing has changed. The Egyptians, who you think are coming to your rescue, will soon be gone and the Babylonians will resume their attack. And yet during this brief lull, while the Babylonians and the Egyptians are facing off with each other, Jeremiah says, hey, maybe it's a good time to go visit my homeland, check the property of that field I bought or whatever he wants to do there. And so he heads out. And as he's headed out of the city, this sentry, this guard named Arijah, sees him. And with him, he sees an opportunity. He doesn't like Jeremiah. He despises him. (laughs) Jeremiah is not very uh, popular at this point. Uh, He has been warning of judgment. He has foretold the day when Babylon would come and destroy them. It's not that Jeremiah wanted this. We saw Jeremiah wrestle and, and, and fight with God about this. Jeremiah has been warning the people specifically so that they might avert this end. It's not that he wants it, but he's been willing to speak the truth. But the truth doesn't matter to someone like Elijah. You know what that's like? You know how easy it is when someone warns you of danger... You know how easy it is to accuse them of wanting that danger. Why do you hate me, we ask? Why are you wishing such pain on me? Why can't you support me? There's no logic. There's nothing reasonable about this response. It's deflecting. It's not meant to seek the truth, but actually to obscure it. It's meant to to take the focus off of our foolishness and make the other person look mean, which, let's be honest, is like the greatest social sin you can commit. Saying something that can be taken as mean. It's meant to simply recast ourselves as victims rather than fools. And so Elijah strings together a few facts to spin a new narrative that wouldn't hold up to the most basic of examinations He says, look, Jeremiah has been saying the Babylonians will conquer us. He's leaving the city. (coughs) What could he be doing but defecting? He's joining the enemy. He is the enemy of God's people. And so he takes Jeremiah to the the city officials and they throw him in prison. His story is weak. it's, It's a house of cards that would come tumbling down at the merest breath or whisper of truth. So why does he do it? Well, it's to see his star rise. If you want to go up the ladder in society, the the quickest way is to find someone to take down. And the bigger the fish, the quicker your rise, your ascent. What better way 
than to take down the prophet Jeremiah. And what better way to take him down than to question his patriotism? Because who doesn't want to be patriotic? But here's the thing. This is a land that claims to follow God. Wouldn't faithfulness to that God be the highest form of patriotism? But that doesn't matter. Don't muddy the waters with facts. Elijah's no more interested in patriotism than he is in the truth. He's simply an opportunist. An opportunist. To be truly human, what, what makes us different than animals is a capacity for truth. But with, that, with the capacity for truth also comes the ability to suppress it, to manipulate it, to weaponize it. For Elijah, lies are simply the tools he uses to get ahead, and so he obscures the truth. He craves what serves him over what is good and right. And so instead of subduing his desire for evil, he suppresses the truth, he subdues his conscience. He acts positively beastly, like an animal. It's inhuman. Everything he appears to be on the outside, a Jew, a servant of the land, a patriot, a protector, a protector of truth, is a lie. What people see when they look at him is not the true story. But what does his name tell us? God sees. Just because we can, see, can deceive each other doesn't mean that we can deceive God. He knows the truth. He knows the human heart. Even when we act beastly, he knows what's going on. And it's against Elijah's story that we uh, read about Ebed-Melech in chapter 38. So let's, let's move to chapter 38 and read verses 7 through 13. When, uh, verse 7. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. The king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. And he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian Take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. And then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. And then they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Outwardly, uh, Ebed-Melech is the opposite of Elijah. He's not even a Jew. He's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. He has no inherent tie to the land or its future. (coughs) 
it probably would be smartest for him to simply to go back to Ethiopia and wash his hands of all the craziness and all the danger going on in Jerusalem. His name, Ebed-Melech, pregnant moms, you guys are looking for a good name, strong name for a son. Uh, Ebed-Melech means servant of the king. The question is, will he live up to his name? And to which king? Ebed-Melech is in Jerusalem, and he sees what's happening to Jeremiah. After uh, Elijah uh, took him into the city guards, put him uh, in prison, a little while later, they decided to throw him into a deep cistern, a big pit dug where they stored water. The bottom is muddy. It's far down. Worse than being in prison. Probably just meant to humiliate him. Now think about Ebed-Melech's situation. He's a non-Jew living in a land where being a Jew is very important. It's a time of war when suspicions of traitors and spies are at their highest. Getting involved in local politics is probably about as tempting as a root canal. If he speaks up of all people, how easy would it be to end up in that cistern with Jeremiah? What is he going to accomplish other than make his life harder? How easy would it be for him to look the other way and just say, not my fight? (laughs) Or to say something like, I'm going to do a lot more good by not getting involved on this fool's errand than getting involved. And yet he, he looks at the situation, he understands, he knows that everything has been based upon a lie, It lacks all compassion, all decency, all all humanity. There's no compassion in Jerusalem because compassion is costly. It literally means to suffer with. To have compassion on someone means to enter into their pain with them. It's a uniquely human trait because we're made in the image of a compassionate God. The God of the Bible is not some detached deity who keeps a safe distance from his creation. He is close. He is involved. He enters into our pain and our suffering, and he suffers with us. And that's most clearly seen when God became man for the singular purpose of suffering, not just with us, but in our place. He was in the perfection of heaven. Jesus was in the perfection of heaven where there's no pain, no suffering. He could have looked down and said, they made their bed, let them lie in it. Or he could have said, not my fight. He could have chosen not to get entangled in our mess. That's not what he did. The king of heaven left his throne left his glory, and the king became a servant. He put himself in a harm's way to show love, to show compassion. He was more concerned about what's good and what's right than what's safe.
Love was more important to him than self-preservation and comfort. That's who God is. That's who the king of heaven is. Will Ebed-Melech, the servant of the king, live up to his name? Will he serve the king in whose image he has been made? Or will he suppress that image and act beastly like Arijah did? Will he follow the example of Arijah? Or will he be compassionate? Will he be human? It's a question that faces every one of us. For some of us, the cost is more obvious, like it was for the ten booms. Do they turn a blind eye and say, that's between the Jews and the Nazis. That's not our fight. We're not going to get involved. Or do they open their home and possibly share the fate of the Jews with them? But for most of us, it won't be that dire. Sometimes it's simply risking humiliation for being friends with someone who others don't like. Sometimes it means standing up to someone who can make your life miserable. Sometimes the cost is simply your time and your comfort as you give up that precious time and you go help someone in need. But compassion always costs something. Ebed-Melech chose compassion over ease and comfort. He chose love, knowing full well it would cost him. He didn't see imprisonment or even death as the worst possibility. It would be worse to deny God. There are worse things than falling into the hands of your enemy. And so he took a stand. He went to the king, King Zedekiah, to confront this great injustice. He surrendered to the God who made him and entrusted the consequences to that God. But who is Zedekiah? That's the third person in the story. We've got Elijah, we've got Ebed Melech, and then there's Zedekiah. Who is it that Ebed Melech is going to with these concerns? Well, first we need to understand that Zedekiah is not the rightful king. He's Jehoiakim's um, brother. Jehoiakim's son, Kaniah, was the rightful king, became king after Jehoiakim. But Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had removed him and installed Zedekiah, Kaniah's uncle, in his place. And what made Zedekiah preferable was that he had no spine. It would be easier... To, destroy, uh, to control him than controlling uh, Kaniah. He went wherever the wind was blowing. When Jeremiah warned Israel that Babylon would be coming, Zedekiah ignored the prophet. When Babylon was pounding down their door, he suddenly sought counsel from the prophet who had seen it coming for years. But he was not prepared 
for Jeremiah's response. Chapter 38, verses 14 through 16, Jeremiah told Zedekiah this. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared. And the city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then the city shall be given into the hands of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hands. God said, the only way forward is surrender to the enemy. How do you process that as a king? It takes counting the cost. It takes seeing the big picture. It takes understanding what is truly important. This is not the sort of thing you will ever get a dog or cat to understand. This isn't even running into a burning building. It's surrendering before the building is on fire. It takes the greatest resolve, the likes of which Zedekiah did not possess. And yet there's something about it that makes complete sense. Something that says everything else needs to be surrendered and sacrificed. Something that says sometimes the only way to preserve your life is to let go of it. And again, that only makes sense because we're made in the image of the God who understands this. When God showed compassion and he came into this world, when he, when he left the comforts of heaven to suffer with us, he knew that showing love and compassion would mean paying the ultimate cost. He knew the only way to save the lives of those in his house, his family, those he loved, would be by surrendering into the hands of his enemies. And so he was betrayed by Judas, who acted very much like Elijah. The leaders of Jerusalem sought to destroy his life as they had done so with Jeremiah. The Roman soldiers approached, and as they did, or they did so as the Babylonian army had so many years before. And as all that happened, as, as Judas betrayed him, as, as the leaders of Jerusalem sought to destroy his life, as, as the foreign armies sought to capture him, his disciples wanted to take up arms and fight their way out. But Jesus said, no. He walked over to his captors, and he surrendered into their hands. It was the only way. It took fighting every instinct of self-preservation. It meant exposing every lie and clinging to the truth. It meant suffering with others in the most ultimate sense. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image, the perfect image of the invisible God. He is the one who sees all and knows all. He is not just the servant of the king. He is the servant king. He knows the greatest resolve and he is willing to do what is right because it is right no matter what the cost. Jesus is the truest man to ever walk the earth. And I don't think we often think like that. 
We think that Jesus was sort of man, but not really, not fully. And that's plain wrong. Not only was he fully God and fully man, he was the truest, purest example of what it means to be human that the world has ever seen. He sets the bar of what it means to be human. He is what we must aspire to if we want to be wholly human. And that probably sounds daunting. It sounds insurmountable. We might as well try to jump to the moon. But God sees. Elijah's name tells us so. He sees your imperfect life. The lies you believe and the lies you tell. He sees the love you withhold in order to make your life easier and more comfortable. And he sees the grief in your heart as you know what you are doing is wrong and a fundamental denial of what you were created to be. He sees your pain. He sees your struggle. He sees your sense of helplessness. He sees it all. And he does not leave you on your own. He simply says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. God, beloved, says you are his chosen ones. And that the old ways no longer define you, verse 9, Colossians 3. They might still arise and fight against you, but they are not your identity. He is renewing you, he says, in his own image. And it's out of that reality that he calls you to walk in a new way. In knowledge of the truth, verse 10. In compassion, verse 12. And in meekness, verse 12. Which means a willingness to surrender when that is required. Meekness is not weakness. It's a willingness to put your strength in check when that's needed. It was meekness, not weakness, that led Jesus to the cross. Beloved, God is changing you. He is shaping you. He is making you more and more like him. And he tells you that when he is done, you will be like him. Luke 6.40, when a a disciple is fully trained, he is like his master. That's his end game. That's what he's doing in your life. But it is a long road, and it takes a long time. And he is with you on the journey. He brings trials into your lives to shape you. He presents you with opportunities to respond. But most importantly, he keeps before you the image of what he is shaping you to be like, the truest human ever, Jesus Christ. And he does that through the scriptures, in your private reading and the public preaching. And he does that through the Lord's Supper, which we aren't able to celebrate this morning. But its message is just as truly with us. 
Normally, God calls us to his table each week so that we might never forget the truth, that we might never forget what compassion looks like, so that we might remember that victory sometimes comes through surrender. Each week, he meets with us in worship through his word and through his sacraments so that we might remember what it truly means to be human. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you made us different than you made the animals, uniquely gifted with your very own image. And we ask that you would renew, that you would restore that you would perfect that image in us until we are fully human, until we are like Jesus. Teach us to love your truth. Teach us to have compassion. Teach us to stand for what is right and not be driven and tossed. All of this we ask through Jesus Christ, the perfect human, the image of the invisible God. God become flesh, our only way of salvation. Amen.